Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Two years ago, new laws spawned by the Jerry Sandusky child abuse scandal expanded the definition of child abuse in Pennsylvania. The new laws also increased the number of people required to report child abuse. As a result, caseworkers at County Children and Youth Services were inundated with new reports of child abuse. Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene D. Bisquale said in his State of the Child report last month that Child Welfare Protective Services are understaffed and overburdened, which could put children in danger. Joining us is the state's Auditor General Eugene D. Bisquale. General D. Bisquale, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. If you have a question or a comment about child uh, welfare, about uh, children being in danger, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, General, let me just start with that basic question. Are children in danger in this state? Well, the short answer is yes, although it's not all the, you know, I, I want to make it clear that it's not just because of this law. In fact, the law did a lot of good things, and, and I could even argue that maybe it brought us greater attention to what was already happening. But when you have nearly 40% of the kids in Cambria County that are that have been touched by the CYS system, Children Youth Service system, in, in the past year and a half, when you have the opioid um, explosion that we've had in the state, there's no question that kids are in danger in the state. The question is, are we doing enough as a state to meet these challenges, and I would say the answer is no. But the one positive we can take out of this is that we're at least much more aware of the problem now. Forty percent in Cambria County. How is that possible? It, it's it, that was the most jaw-dropping number of the whole report. There's a lot of shocking things that we found, at least in my view, shocking. But when you when that that was clearly the the one that just you, you, you sort of look at that and you just. You have to read it three or four times over to make sure you're not missing something. Well, when you say that uh, 40% of the children have uh, come in contact with uh, CYS, in, in what way? Uh, maybe somebody thought they were abused, somebody's been abused, there was an issue where they had to go to the home. I mean, that, that, that is, you know, so it could be any reason why there was contact with the agency over the child. Mm. So what are some of the issues that are leading to the system being broken, as you called it? Well, you start off with the idea that there's that many kids that are in some level of, of danger or harm. So, so you start off with that, and the Sandusky issue changed the law so that now more people are primary reporters, so the stuff is getting reported. That's the part where I take some positive that is this is coming out of the shadows and we're more aware of it. But here's the situation. You have just in your county alone over 90% of the caseworkers turnover in the last year. 90%. So a caseworker comes in, they start to work with a child, they start to work with a family, they build up some level of trust. That's the ideal. And then 90% turnover means even when things are operating smoothly, you have to start that whole trust building process over again. So that's sort of put, put that as one challenge. The second challenge is, you know, if you're a law enforcement officer and you go to a domestic situation, that's considered the one of the most unpredictable situations for any police officer or you have basically young men and women coming out of college with bachelor's degrees going into the exact same situation only with no backup no law enforcement training and sometimes trying to make a decision about whether to take the child out of the home that is an explosive situation very dangerous and i don't believe uh, the young men and women that are doing that job are nearly in a position to handle that um, just from a safety standpoint. And we've heard from caseworkers, they show up you know, where somebody's sitting on the porch with a gun saying, you come on this porch, you're going to get killed. Um, and that is not an isolated 
situation. Um, and then the third part is, you know, the pay is very low. Um, when I describe the type of work it is, you know, I coach American Legion baseball, and some of the, you know, the young men they say, oh, what, you know, what, what's his like? And I start describing the job and the pay, and they say, there's absolutely no way they would do that. They'd rather work at Starbucks, which maybe is a little bit less pay, but significantly less aggravation. Yeah, I, I have to admit that uh, the, the thought crossed my mind after reading your report of, you know, who actually would want to do this job. I mean, we're talking some very smart people uh, who, for the most part, or are right out of college. What kind yeah. of salaries uh, did you find that they are making across the state? You're, you're talking between twenty eight and thirty five thousand dollars. I mean, and so some people say oh, that's you know not a bad starting salary. Yeah, as long as someone's not pointing a gun at your head. Um, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's it it, it is. I think um, definitely for what they do on the low end of the pay scale, um, that's a B. Even some counties like Cumberland that have bumped up the pay, it still isn't enough sometimes to deal with the stress of it. Because I do think more training, more caseworkers um, is certainly uh, another issue that has to be addressed. But there's, other, there's another part of this that I think, look, a lot of us, I mean, you want some meaning in your work. You want to have some value. You want to have some success. I mean, whatever we're doing, whatever your passion is, you want to have the ability to have some success at work. I think even for some of the ones that pay isn't the biggest driver, they keep seeing them running into a dead end, and it becomes, you know, there's sort of no positive reinforcement at work either. So I, I think there's, there's a whole series of issues that come up with this. Yeah, and there are so many uh, questions I have after, you know, just uh, the, the first thing, a few things that you've mentioned in our conversation, but something you said about uh, uh, some of the, the I don't know, the obstacles they face or the danger that these caseworkers face. Uh, I read that there are a number of caseworkers who told you that, or, or your auditors, that uh, they are seen as the enemy. When they show up at a, at a family's home, uh, they're not seen as someone there to help. They are seen as someone who possibly could be taking a child away. That's, that's 100 percent correct. Um, put, you know, just for all your listeners out there, yourself and, you know, put yourself in this situation. Somebody shows up at, at the home, 23, 24 years old, smart young woman, young man, idealistic, and they show up and they see a kid in danger and the parents are there and they make the decision on, you know, to remove the child from the home. The rest of society can view that as the right decision. But we're not all there at that home looking out for that worker. They're there by themselves with the two parents there that potentially are putting that kid in harm. So if they're putting the kid in harm, you think they're going to have any concern about putting the worker in harm as well? You know, I have to wonder about you know some of the the you know you listed about some of the people, some of the parents in in these situations. I mean, there are some horrifying stories that you found. Kids being kept in cages. Who would yeah. do that? I I, I I shouldn't even when I I'm almost with a nervous laughter there. Um, it's a sick, demented human being that would do that. I mean, that, that, there's no other way to describe that. Uh, and, and, and again, I come back to if you're willing to do that to your child, think about what you're willing to do to the caseworker. Mm. Uh, you mentioned, and we're going to go through some of the recommendations, but uh, some of the findings that you have in the report is that there are not enough qualified professionals. Now, you've already established that uh, many of these people, uh, is it many or is it most that our uh, caseworkers are right out of school? Um. It is uh, the new ones, the ones that are newly hired. There are some, like we were just in Luzerne County. There have been people that have been doing this for 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. and God bless them. I mean, and some of their stories are just, you know, horrifying as well. But when they hire new people, it's almost always people that are relatively new to the workforce. And in case people are wondering, like, whether this is made up or not about the challenges here, right now in Luzerne County, which has, you know, an underemployment problem, they have 24 open caseworker jobs, and they can't fill them. Yeah, almost every county that you looked at. Now, you didn't look at all 67 counties. You couldn't correct, do correct. that. We looked at about 13 of them. But it, almost all of them, you tell me if it's all of them, uh, had openings for these jobs, right? Absolutely. Uh, we didn't find one county that didn't have an opening, 
and they all say the same thing. They can't find people to fill them. Um, because, and, and, and again, Ms. Cortez, you know, it's easy for us sometimes to say, well, come on, it's, it's $30,000, you're a young man, young woman, it's a good career start. Yeah, if, if Starbucks has an opening that pays you a little less, um, and this job, and you, and, and you start talking to people going, wait a minute, I could show up to a home, somebody could point a gun to my head, or somebody's upset because I put two sugars in the coffee as opposed to one, which one are you going to take? Mm. Uh, what I wanted to get at is uh, you mentioned that there aren't enough qualified professionals. What's qualified? Well, for this, you, almost every single, because you have to pass a civil service test or the county has to have some similar type of situation, you know, uh, you know, professional background. So yeah, almost always have to have a college degree, usually some degree of social work, and then and then some additional training to go with it. Mm. So when you say that not enough qualified professionals are being hired, what kind of background do the people who are being hired have? The ones who aren't qualified? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, what, what we mean is that th- there may be uh, situations where there are people that would be unqualified available, but they don't get hired. Oh, okay, okay. All right, so you also pointed out the training, and you've mentioned that uh, a few times. How could the training, maybe I should have put it this way, what kind of training do they get now, and how could that training be improved? It is actually starting to get better, and I'd like to think this report and some of the things that, that are happening across the state are leading to that, and I think that there's also a lot of other issues that are propping up as well that are leading to this. So it's really, part of this is... <laughs> Excuse me. The comments that we think are doing better on the training are the ones that start to take role playing seriously. What I mean by that is sitting there and taking um, a, a test, whether it be civil service or some local exam. That may be uh, you know find a you know make sure that you have the academic background. But we we have found that the real successful training are where they're actually role playing crisis management situations where they're training someone when they go into the home. What happens? How how do you react when someone does this? How do you react when someone does that? And you do it over and over and over again so that they are better prepared for crisis situations. Yeah, this is something that uh, you know our society seems to be paying a whole lot more attention to, uh, not just caseworkers working with uh, children and youth, police officers who uh, you know maybe come into contact with uh, someone who is suffering from a mental illness. Right. Uh, you know, so we've finally seemed to be trained people who may come into contact with these dangerous situations. So that's good to hear that there has been some improvement in, in training. Uh, heavy caseloads is another thing that uh, you mentioned in the report. Give us an example of what kind of caseloads we're talking about. Well, they could go anywhere from so there was a suspected abuse and, and, and what, where one didn't happen. And even that leads to a lot of paperwork for the caseworker, uh, you, know, uh, you know, meeting with the child, meeting with um, the parents uh, or, or the appropriate guardians. From that to needing to make it the decision to remove a child from the home. And all of this leads to enormous amounts of paperwork. And some of that is absolutely necessary. I mean, you know, there, there has to be a level of accountability there. But the caseworkers describe sometimes doing similar type of forms seven times over, which takes them away from actually meeting with the children and the families, which is what they should be primarily doing. But isn't that government, though? I mean, well, yeah, you, no. <laughs> you've worked uh, oh, in government long enough to know... But what's different here? What's different is, I think, and just judging from the caseworkers, is doing the same thing five different times. Um, I do think that with all of our technology, with Google and apps and all this other stuff, one of the things, and I don't have the exact answer right now, but one of the things that I'm stressing is we have to find a simpler way to cut down so that there is accountability, but on the same token, they're not doing the same type of forms over and over and over again, that there's got to be a way to do it you know, in a much more streamlined fashion. Mm-hmm. So getting back to caseloads, though, uh, I, the, the way I, I understand it is that each caseworker is assigned a different case. And right. uh, what is an ideal number of cases that a caseworker should have? Oh, I, you know, look, that, it, it, that's a really, um, uh, I, I hate to even venture the guess because they're so different in the type of cases. Um, so I, I, I'd hate to even venture a number on that. I would defer to the caseworkers on that. But again, the cases are so different. 
um, the commutes, the, tr the travel in the county. So you have a county that may have a smaller geographic area versus one that is larger. Because again, you're talking about driving out to these homes a lot, too. So there, there's a lot of different factors that would go into what would be an ideal caseload. Okay, so maybe we can't answer the ideal number of cases, but you're pointing out in the report that there are caseworkers who have many, many more than what they probably should. It's almost, they're Luzerne, almost overwhelmed. Yeah, take Luzerne County where they have 24 openings. They have the enormous caseload with 24 openings. So that means that all the people working there are handling all the cases that should be handled by a staff of 24 additional people. Mm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Our guest during this portion of the program is Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale. We're talking about the report that he put out last month called State of the Child that found that uh, child welfare services in Pennsylvania, as he called it, are broken. A lot of understaff of uh, caseworkers, underpaid, high turnover, and it could put ch children in danger. If you have a question or comment, maybe a suggestion on how to do things better, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. General, before we get back into your findings in the report, you know, I, I, I can't get that out of my mind that about that uh, figure of 40 percent of children in Cambria County, that high turnover rate in uh, your county, children being kept in in cages. Is there an educational component to this or some way that I don't know? I don't know how you get people who should be responsible parents to become responsible parents. How do you do that? Does government have a role there? I. I you know, look, I don't think the government can make people just generally more responsible human beings. But I'm going to throw another part out of you that should be equally shocking as everything you just mentioned. How many people in your audience, and you have a very educated audience, know that the Luzerne County CYS office was actually bombed? Oh, yeah. I, didn't, I mean, it was actually bombed with three Molotov cocktails from an upset guardian who was upset that the, the child was taken from the home. Now, the idea that you would be so upset that you would bomb the people that took you may be a sign of they made the right decision. But And, and I bring that up to that's, that's what we're dealing with here. Somebody actually bombed a government office in Luzerne County as a result of the decision of one of the caseworkers. Mm. And, yeah, I, I didn't know about that until I read a story about the, after your report that uh, uh, the bombing had taken place. And just think about the kind of danger and, and the, the, how frightening that is for the people who go to work every day, knowing that uh, that's, uh, that's a possibility. And, by the way, here's what those caseworkers did that day. Their building was bombed, and they still met in the parking lot to make sure that they were coordinated on getting out and doing, handling all their cases that day. Mm. So even though there's a high turnover, it sounds as though the people who are doing the job are dedicated. That, that's Look, obviously there's never 100%, but my finding was, and our, our research and, and just our meetings, are that you have a lot of people that care a lot about the kids and families in Pennsylvania. So, you know, we I mentioned in the introduction that uh, the new laws that took effect in uh, 2015 were as a result of the Sandusky child abuse scandal. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, these were seen as, this was seen as a universally good thing. That, uh, but what it did was it expanded the de definition of child abuse, also increased the number of people who were, were mandated reporters, were required to report uh, suspected child right. abuse. Uh, I mean, obviously, the legislature had to know that there would be more reports of child abuse. But were there any additional people hired across the state? Well, that's the, the, my, the part of this that is just absolutely mind-numbing to me. 
is logic would tell you that, yes, there'd be more reports. But even as this was going through, the Department of Human Services, I believe this is about um, 2013, their statement on the public record was they did not need any additional staff resources, which I am just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go to my grave wondering how that how that happened. Mm. But has have there been any higher since? I mean, additional. I mean, obviously, you know, the counties are still understaffed. They're looking for people. But I mean, were there more positions created? Well, th- well, uh, where my journey on this as the auditor general started was our original audit was of the child line. We found the fifty eight thousand unanswered phone calls at the child abuse hotline. That at least led after that audit to uh, the legislature and the administration. Um, putting together um, a better staffing and technology of the ch- of the the child abuse hotline, so that one is in a much better place now as a result of the audit. Um, but there's clearly much more work, and so after that, then we went to the county level, and uh, hopefully um, the same type of action will take place as a result of this report. Let's take some phone calls here. David is in Carlisle. David, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I'm a member of the clergy and uh, also a mandatory reporter. What I was curious about is where where does uh, where does the balance come in between us um, reporting uh, suspected child abuse and then also having that uh, confidentiality and uh, penitent privilege of, of people in the community. Thank you very much. All right, thank you very much for your call. Uh, you know, obviously, he's talking about uh, you know the clergy hearing confession or right. that someone. You, go ahead, you you can respond to that. Yeah, look, um, uh, that's a tough one, and I am not a member of the class, so, um, but it'd be pretty tough for me to sort of sit there and hear someone confessing to abusing a child and being a mandated reporter and not letting someone know, but I've not taken that same vow, so um, I will only tell you that as someone that hasn't, I mean, I'm a mandated reporter for two things. One is my, my position, and two is, you know, I coach American Legion Baseball, um, that's not nearly the same thing as being a member of the cloth and hearing hearing confession. Um, but uh, I understand the quandary. But on the same token, I, you know, it, it'd be pretty tough not to report um, suspected child abuse. But that is something that uh, whether it's child abuse or other crimes that the, the clergy has had to deal with over the years and ways yeah. they've dealt with it is they have taken that vow and they have to respect that confidentiality. Yeah. That is that is a real that is a real quandary. There's no question about it. It is a absolute real quandary, and you know the. And I'm sort of uh, thinking that through as someone who, again, who has not taken that same vow, is that maybe you just work really hard with that individual to get them to confess themselves. Mm. Let's take another call from Whitney in Sealands Grove. Whitney, you're on the air. Yes, I have a question about um, grandparents programs. Is there any such thing as grandparents programs, volunteer or paid? Thank you. I'll take my. All right. Thank, thank you very much for your call. We know um, that I do know. Yeah, I do know that there's more grandparent rights than there used to be 20 years ago um, in this process, but I don't know about any paid positions along those lines. But you know, the, he brings up something that, uh, and you're kind of touching on this too, that we are seeing more and more families where the grandparents are the guardians of the children. Yeah. And I'm wondering what kind of rights grandparents have, and I don't know whether you can even answer this question, that if they see their grandchild being abused, that they say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to be the guardian of that kid. I I mean, do they have any rights in that way? They they do. Well, first of all, the parents are going to have the primary rights, and it turns into, you really get into a legal question there. But I do know grandparents have more rights in the legal system than they would have had 20 years ago. But if they see the suspected abuse, I'm not sure it automatically kicks to them that they would then get custody of the child, though. Uh, we have another call here from Liz in Carlisle. Liz, you're on, excuse me, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I'm so glad that you're talking about this issue. Um, I have two, two comments. I teach in a, uh, the Shippensburg University Social Work Program, and I would really encourage the state to work with the vast, network of social work programs um, across the state that could really help to address some of the retention and recruitment issues. Um, I mean, social work is is where that training happens. 
when child welfare workers go for training, um, they're using social work models. And so, you know, students graduating with social work degrees are, are really well suited for these positions. Um, but there's, you know, there's recruitment and retention issues and, and things like the Title IV-E program that helps to um, incentivize social work students to go into the child welfare field um, would be great to expand and, and look into those kinds of programs. And then my other piece is just um, uh, a media call. Uh, you know, the only time we hear about child welfare workers or social workers, unfortunately, is when something bad happens. Um, so uh, a lot of the public doesn't know about so many of the wonderful things that they do every day. So anytime, Scott, you want to have a program about the social work profession, let me know. I'll be there. Okay. Hey, thank you well, very much. By the way, the caller brings up a great point. And that thank is you. What happens, and I don't, this is not condemning or condoning anyone. But all of us in society, you know, this sort of happens under the radar screen. Then a child dies, and then everyone reads the newspaper, sees it on the news, and gets outraged and say, how did this happen? Well, hopefully this report and, you know, some of the calls we're getting um, and some of the other details that are coming out of this detail exactly how this happens, which is, you know, it's not just you, you know, the, the one caseworker that, that screwed up and that, uh, how did that happen. Actually, there's a lot of little miracles that these people are doing every single day. Yeah, and I, I mean, she's right. Liz is right that, uh, you know, when there is uh, that tragedy, that is the only time that you hear about it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you publicize those little miracles on an everyday basis. But at the same time, people should look at it with an eye that uh, that, you know, those those tragedies actually don't happen that often. But right. with that said, you pointed out that there were 46 children who died last year as the result of abuse or neglect in Pennsylvania. There were more than 70 who were close to death. And one of the statistics that, uh, or I guess anecdotes that uh, you found, is that uh, many of those children, maybe even up to half of those children who died, were known to children and youth services, right? Yeah, that's correct, yes. So how did that happen then? I mean, every case is different, I know. Yeah. Um, uh, it goes, it, it, it lays into all the things that we've been talking about, which is overburdening caseworkers, too many cases, not enough of them. Um, you know, maybe, uh, and again, this is just a, a, an opinion of mine, you get a little shy about pull, because of all the horror stories about pulling a kid out of a home, hoping that it turns out better, and it ends up not. I have to tell you that, you know, General, I've been thinking about this as we're talking. What a responsibility for a caseworker, especially a young person who may be right out of school, to what a responsibility to think about that you actually can make a life-changing decision for a child, for a family, for a lot of people around. That's just a, a heck of a responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know when I was 23, 24, um, I didn't have those type of decisions to make. Mm. You also mentioned the impact of the opioid crisis. What impact is it having on, you know, the potential for danger or abuse or neglect for children in this state? Well, um, one of the things we're seeing is as more families have to deal with this crisis, you know, when you have parents that are becoming more and more addicted or not parents, but, you know, a someone in the house that's more addicted, um, you know, we've had situations where, they fall asleep on the child, um, you know, because they're just high. Um, so, you know, you have that. And then it's just, it's just the overall deterioration of the household when somebody gets addicted to opioids. So this explosion of opioids has impacted well beyond just that individual. It sometimes leads to a breakup in the family um, and children that are in a home where a parent is now a, a drug addict because of their addiction to opioids. And, you know, we, we have to look ahead that you think about uh, some of the environments that you've described here that these children are growing up with. What kind of adults are they going to be? I mean, if you don't have role models, you don't have that happiness, that security growing up, you're living in danger. I mean, when, when they grow up, what are they going to know themselves? Well, that's one of the things that I stressed in this because the immediate reaction, oh, you're calling for more spending. And, and the short answer is yes, but I also don't view it that way because um, I, I know what's going to happen if we don't tackle this with more investment up front, which is before you even get to the human level of this, 
you're going to get more kids that when they're adults, they're going to be more likely to be drug addicts, more likely to abuse their children, and much more likely to be incarcerated, all three of which lead to dramatic costs to the state. So I think it is the right moral thing, the right ethical thing to try to tackle this up front. But I also think if you just want to be selfish about it being a taxpayer, um, I think it also is a more fiscally responsible way to tackle it as well because what is look there's always going to be that one story the you know the kid that overcame all, all these dramatic things and put themselves through Yale Law School and we're going to write a book and that person's going to have a book and a TV show and we're going to say see that one can do it and then there's 99 that we didn't see that end up with a destroyed life. Mm. We only have a few more minutes, uh, General. You made recommendations, actually 17 of them. What are some of the most significant recommendations you made here? I think we've got to improve the pay. I think we've got to get better training. Um, and I also think that we've got to find a way to reduce the turnover. So I think that that goes into, again, you know, the training and the pay is part of that. But I think we have to find a way to get more reinforcements for these workers. And also, we have to find a way to give them, to make them feel more value in their work, create more success stories. Because for any of us, if you feel like you're just beaten down at work over and over and over again, even if the pay is good, you're eventually going to bail. So we've got to find a way to create more, create a better environment where there's more success at work as well. I think if we give them, you know, more success, the pay and and the better training, I think some of the other problems will then take care of themselves. One of the major recommendations that was pointed out, though, was to create a position of ombudsman. What yeah. what, what would that person do? Yeah, that well, that is different than on the caseworker side of it. That is the person who would be. You know, beyond administrations, who would be sit, who would be placed in the Department of uh, Human Services, and they would be the one to coordinate all the child protection activities uh, across state agencies and across the Commonwealth. Again, that, that seems like a big job, but it's really the person to make sure that everything is being coordinated. And when something is falling through the cracks, their job is to bring it to the governor and the secretary of the department's attention so that they can address it and also to be the lead spokesperson to the to the general assembly so that they are fully aware um, of what's going on across the state we are almost out of time but we had another caller and made a suggestion and uh, gretchen uh, who lives in central Pennsylvania now, but uh, worked in public health in uh, Baltimore, said they used the courts also suggested that when someone goes into a home, they go with police. Is that something that doesn't happen now, or is it something that should happen all the time? It does happen, not enough. It should happen significantly more. And you take Luzerne County where the bombing happened, there is now a much more coordinated effort between law enforcement, um, you know, both uh, Hazleton and Wilkes-Barre, police departments, and the case workers. That needs to be the model all over the state. One final question. When you're talking about more spending on this, how much more? Right now, the state, uh, or last year anyway, the sp- state spent $1.8 billion. Yeah, and, and so, uh, look, it, it, when you find a situation where you have 24 case workers that are funded in Luzerne County and they can't fill them, um, you know, look, you're probably talking about you know, when you're talking about more pay, more training, it's definitely going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 25 to $30 million more across the state um, to get to improve the training and to improve the pay and to get more people in the door. I mean, so that's probably what you're talking about up, up front. But on the same token, you're going to be reducing incarceration rate and addiction rates down the line. Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale, thank you very much for being with us today. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks for helping bring attention to this. Anytime. And you can read the State of the Child Report on WITF.org, our website, or the Auditor General's website if you would like. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's epic documentary, The Vietnam War, resulted in many across the nation discussing aspects of the conflict that may have been difficult to talk about. With that in mind, the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle is hosting a discussion with veterans tonight entitled Recovering Sacred Ground for All Generations. 
Uh, it talks about the, the experience and, uh, that uh, many of the veterans had in Vietnam and help facilitate continued dialogue concerning the impact of the war on their lives. Joining us to talk about tonight's discussion about the film and, uh, you know, just what veterans from Vietnam went through and are still going through, Colonel William Bar- Barco is retired. He's the executive director of operations for the U.S. Army War College Foundation and is coordinating the event. Colonel Barco, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Scott. Also, Dr. Dr. Jo- Doug Johnson is a historian, Vietnam veteran himself, and retired faculty member at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. Johnson, thank you for being with us. Yeah, he's going to, we're going to pass the phone between each other. So, uh, Scott, so let's just get, move on with this and we'll work it. Okay, that's a little, that's a little bit different, but we'll, we'll go with it. Okay. So, Colonel Barco, uh, talk about uh, what kind of prompted the event tonight. We know that uh, the Vietnam War, the film, was uh, part of what motivated this, but uh, talk about what you wanted to do. Okay, first of all, as you recall, Scott, last year in mid-September, uh, we did a evening uh, reviewing the movie Thank You for Your Service, which was a documentary film that looked at the issues associated with war trauma of vets in the Afghan-Iraqi uh, conflicts. And I, we brought in a panel... We had probably 150 people attending, lots of questions and lots of concerns over issues associated with trauma and war. And then about late spring of this year, I think everybody began to realize sometime in the fall there would be the Burns-Novak series would be – would be able to be viewed on PBS. And I decided, you know what? We need to bring together a panel to reflect on that series because my sense is, and many were in agreement, that there'll be some that like it and some that will be very critical of it. And, and that's, uh, however, the key was we wanted especially veterans, family members, spouses who were part of that generation to be able to at least come together and talk about it. Well, I'm sure that, uh, you, Colonel Barco, that uh, you watched the series. And by the way, yeah. uh, you know, all 10 parts it finished up last week, but uh, we are showing it again here on WITF starting tonight at uh, 9 o'clock on WITF-TV. It will air every Tuesday night for the next uh, nine weeks after tonight. So if you missed it or missed any parts of it, You'll have the opportunity to see it again. Your thoughts on what you saw in the Vietnam War by uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, and what parts of it that you saw do you think will, you know, generate conversation? Okay, so I'm going to pass this, unless we change, to Doug, and he is going to give some comments on his reflections on what he saw in the series and I'll follow up with that, but I want Doug to get a chance since okay. he's a historian and has a few thoughts on what he saw stood out in the issues that it raised for us. Mm-hmm. Here he is. Hold on. So, so Dr. Johnson, uh, you know, I'll just ask the, 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 the same question of you. What okay. parts of the film? What parts of the film do you think will uh, be significant to the Vietnam vets who watched it, and maybe not even the Vietnam vets, but those who lived through that time, and also maybe start with your impressions of the film. On balance, I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good uh, show. Uh, when you're trying to cram 15 years of war into 10 episodes, an awful lot was left out. And quite frankly, from the feedback I'm getting from my West Point classmates, company mates, and others, it's the stuff that was left out which uh, has uh, raised probably as many issues as uh, anything else in there. Um, a few misstatements of fact, a few statements that weren't followed up in balance as far as uh, the observers were concerned. 
but but let me interrupt yeah. for just one moment. Yeah. Like what was left out? I mean, obviously, when you're putting together this is an 18 hour uh, yeah. series for for television, that's almost unprecedented. But yeah. um, what was left out that uh, many would have liked to have seen? The portrayal of combat uh, by the Americans was not particularly well done. The Iodrang was 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 pretty good. After that, the 173rd and all the stuff in the Ashau and the Kanchen uh, stuff by the Marines, an awful lot of guys look at that and say, that's some of the most unprofessional crap I've ever seen in my life. But what set a lot of them off was, okay, Milai was bad. 531 people, innocent people killed, that's bad. And there's sort of a mention of the slaughter of the civilians at way, and there was mention of the D.C. assassinations, as though there was moral equivalency, and the guys are really, really angry about that. There, for the most part, the American Army conducted itself in a relatively professional way compared to what the communists did. And that has set some people really uh, on edge. Your point that, yeah, it's only, it's only 18 hours. I throw that out to them and say, guys, guys, we can't get everything. Good stuff. The the uh, the square faced North Vietnamese guy, I forget his name, uh, and the blonde haired NVA soldier. The, both of those guys come across as real people with whom you could have a conversation today. A guy who at the at the playing of a certain song bursts into tears. You expect that from an NVA soldier? No. But it was it was well done, pointing out the relative humanity, the inhumanity of communism at the at the personal level never got mentioned except the the theory of the fraud, rather, of uh, reeducation. Yeah, it was mentioned that reeducation in some cases ran 17 years. Okay, how pervasive is that? Not, not, not well done. Well, you know, but overall, you said you thought it was well done. Yep. You know, obviously, Milai was a big, uh, a, a significant event yep. in in the course of the war, and we yep. were looking at it not necessarily from an American point of view, but you have American filmmakers making it, so yeah. most of the focus is going to be on uh, sure. American combat soldiers. Now, yeah. I'm not apologizing. I'm just saying, I'm just pointing that out, that, uh, no. you know, these are some things. I Obviously, I understand that we've actually gotten a few phone calls here, uh, our program director, that uh, there were veterans who didn't like the fact that the North Vietnamese were part of of it at all, that uh, there were VC, Viet Cong, or uh, former uh, North Vietnamese soldiers who were interviewed and spoke about it, about the war, that they didn't want anything to do with it. They don't want to hear from their enemies, their their former enemies. Well, you can't can't be honest uh, in a presentation like this and eliminate those guys. They were there. We fought them. Why don't they have a voice? It, you, you, can't, you cannot move off ground zero if you simply ignore those people. I mean, my God, we've got uh, World War II people getting, getting together uh, in interesting ways, even today, saying, you know, okay, that war is over, and yeah, it, it's a very complex issue, I understand. And you can't get it all the probably the more uh, interesting thing, and I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out tonight. Early in the series, I think it was about the third episode or so, there was a clear differentiation between those who were objecting to the war on essentially moral grounds. They were anti-war, no matter what its coloration. And then the identification or, or the, the change when all of a sudden the draft expanded and reached a larger group of people who suddenly found themselves <laughs> opposed to a war because it might affect them. And, of course, the, the, the high point of that is Woodstock, where a unlimited uh, intoxication and sex were a sure uh, <laughs> antidote to any anti-war stuff. So as far as the conversation goes uh, for tonight, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of the things you've just mentioned will come up. But how do you approach a conversation and 
or, or do you, I mean, I know the Q&A is going to be a big part of this yeah. uh, tonight, but how do you approach the conversation? Well, it's, it's, going, it's going to be hard, and we're going to try to, to uh, control it, but the, the question is, okay, do you have a good reason for, for uh, your, your feeling toward this thing? What is it that you experienced that leaves you with this attitude? Uh, hang on, just a minute, Bill. Yeah, I'm going to take over. I heard this, uh, Scott. I want to take over. And one of the things that we, uh, Clinton Romisha, back in, uh, authored a book. He's a Medal of Honor winner in Afghanistan. And his quote was this He felt it was important to tell your story. He told it through a book, but he said, tap into the well of your memories and break your silence by finding a way to share your stories with those around you. And here's what becomes critical, because the rest of us need to hear what you have to say. And what's more, you may need to hear it also. You know, and and you know, some, a couple anecdotes here, uh, Colonel Barco. Um, you know, I have heard you tell me whether. I mean, you're much more tuned in with this than than what I am. Uh, but I have heard that so much discussion of Vietnam because of the series is prompting more Vietnam vets to come out and talk about their experiences that, you know, one thing that the film does point out very, very much so is that when so many veterans got home from Vietnam, that they were hesitant to talk about it. They didn't know who they could talk to about it because of the way the public looked at it and uh, how they were being perceived and and all that. So let me ask you this question, just not my observation, but yours. Are more Vietnam vets willing to come out and talk? Maybe they haven't talked about it for 30 or 40 years because of uh, all the discussion going around this series. Yes, and this is... uh Scott, you've raised a most critical point, and I know Doug and I have talked about this and all the members of the panel. Number uh, number one, and he- here's what's really an important point. Uh, Vincent Okamoto, in closing in the last segment, talked about the Vietnam War and the fact that when we came home, we came home alone, okay, alone with all of our experience, both mental, physical, spiritual, we came home alone. Part of that is that the system, once the war developed and evolved, centered around an individual replacement fill system. So it was soldier for soldier, commander for commander, platoon leader for platoon leader, sergeant for sergeant. And so you didn't then come as a unit back home you came back as an individual alone. That's one of the issues. And because of that, we didn't have in all the environment that they walked into, and you heard it in the series, and I had friends who had similar experiences, you really didn't want to tell your story. (laughs) Why tell it? (laughs) You know, it's risky, and I'm not, you know, it's just not safe ground to do that. Mm. Maybe the time now is it is safe ground. In more events like this, we hope in other towns. Now, people talk about it. And I can tell you that Tony Nadal, who's going to be Skyped in as a speaker at this, who lives in Williamsburg, was a company commander in, in you know, Iring Valley, during Valley, with General Moore, Colonel Moore at the time, said the most critical thing that came out of his two tours in Vietnam was that his, his, you know, his soldiers and he got together and have been for many years, and that he feels it has saved lives, marriages, relationships because of that. Mm. Another observation, uh, Colonel. As you know, we, WITF, had several uh, preview events of the Vietnam War by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, and we had panel discussions afterwards. 
Uh, on one occasion, we had uh, a, a former Vietnam veteran, a Vietnam veteran, who um, rose to speak to one of the protesters. And he said, you know, while, um, you know, first of all, he started off by almost apologizing for speaking out, but he said he had to, that uh, he said to the protester that, you know, while my buddies were being killed and I was being shot at, you were here at home protesting what I did, call me baby killer and all, all those kind of uh, derogatory uh, terms. What it made me realize that 45 years after the war ended, or at least American involvement uh, since 1973, that the emotions are still raw. Yes. And with that, the emotions still raw, I'm going to give it back to Doug and let him describe it because of his tour. I know we're – we only have a couple more Right, we only have about a minute left, Doug. Okay, so we'll let Doug talk. All right, okay. Here we go. Yeah, Doug, yeah, Dr. Okay, Johnson, go, go. we only have about a minute left. Emotions yeah. are still raw, aren't they? Uh, in some places, yes. There's, there's been so much uh, publicity talk, so many offers, so much outreach, that I think some of the rawness is being dulled, and time dulls some of it. Uh, but... Are you there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. When yeah. you say but, but what? Uh, Bill just put this thing in front of me. He said, you know, sharing our experiences. This is one of the things we're going to try to do tonight. Okay. Share right. experiences. Once you do that, then then things begin to come apart. Well, the event tonight, Recovering Sacred Ground for All Generations at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle, starts at 7 o'clock, right? Yes, sir. 7 o'clock. And right. you still have uh, openings that if anyone wants to attend? Come in the door. Okay. There's, there's room, and if there's not, we'll make some. Colonel William Barco, retired executive director of operations for the Army War College Foundation. Dr. Doug Johnson, historian, Vietnam vet, and a retired faculty member at the U.S. Army War College. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Doug. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about manufacturing in Pennsylvania and recovering from addiction. Also, wanted to mention that our next Smart Talk road trip is next Wednesday, a week from tomorrow, October 11th, at uh, Booby's Brewery in Mount Joy. Going to be talking about a number of things. Brewing in Pennsylvania, you know, craft beer, big thing right now. The paranormal. Booby's is one of those places that supposedly is haunted. So if you would like to attend, go to WITF's website, WITF.org, slash RSVP, or special events in RSVP. We'd like to see you there. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality.